Alrighty, hello everybody. This is on a shoestring, and today we have Nick Hammond with us. He is a 17th century academic who works on French studies. He is based in the UK, and he works at Cambridge. How are you doing, Nick? I'm doing really well, thank you, Sal. Uh, it's really exciting to have you on the podcast, and... The research that you do is always a place of very real-world application when thinking about French society and its impact globally, but it's also very fascinating to think of your work and your research in the time period and the, the historical context where it exists as well. Um, so would you share a little bit of information about your your research background? Absolutely, no, that's great. I mean, I um, started off very much as a sort of French literature specialist. So when I did my uh, PhD, which was uh, a long time ago, and that was at Oxford, um, I actually did it on the French philosopher, um, Blaise Pascal. And, and so for a lot of my kind of academic career, I've done pretty much work on just either thought, religious thought, or, or um, just literature. And it's only been in about the last uh, six, seven years that um, I started working on a very different sort of field, which I suppose one could call sort of cultural history. And that was, um, I suppose, I started becoming interested in the sort of things that didn't get through the censor, because even 17th century France, you had Louis XIV and everything was very carefully uh, circumscribed and, and there would be, um, for example, uh, all works of literature would have to go through the, the official royal censor to see that it was appropriate. And, and I thought, do you know what, for the last several years, and in fact for centuries, scholars tend to have just been reading everything that was allowed by Louis XIV and seem to have ignored all the material which um, was not allowed to go through the censor or, or went under the radar. So that's where my interest started and then that's how I started working on gossip. And um, I suppose the one big discovery, it's not a, um, discovery is perhaps the wrong word, but um, because some people had written a very little bit about these songs, but I discovered something like 40 volumes of um, handwritten uh, song words, and all set to various popular tunes of the day, which actually told a very different story about what was going on in people's lives. Um, sometimes they functioned a bit like a newspaper, uh, even a tabloid newspaper, which sort of tells the latest gossip about what's happening amongst the rich and famous, but also amongst just general people on the street. So it was through that that I kind of got into the whole world of gossip and and what the, what the function of gossip was. And then, much more recently, I started thinking about, well, how did these songs that I was interested in with the words, how did these um, songs sound? Uh, and especially on the Pont Neuf, and, and those of you who have been to Paris um, will will know where the Pont Neuf is. It's kind of just by the sort of Châtelet, and and not far from Notre Dame. And um, and that uh, that little space, it's this big bridge. 
bridge across the River Seine is where everybody gathered and where people sang songs. And so what I've done is we start working with um, very good musicians who actually specialise in sort of performance practice, practice from 17th century music, that sort of thing. And we've been able to recreate a whole number of songs, um, which are actually on my website. So if anybody's interested in that, that's at parisiansoundscapes.org. Um, you can go and listen to some of the songs and also hear about the stories of the songs. But that's, so as you can see, I've gone from rather austere religious thought to rather scurrilous songs about uh, sometimes quite racy subjects. So that's uh, actually really exciting. And um, with the, the thoughts of gossip, so what would your definition of gossip be? really interesting is that there is no single word like the English gossip for, um, for the word. So for the whole concept of it, there are lots and lots of words. So that was one sort of thing which is quite interesting. But um, the, the term gossip in English comes from the, the old French, or actually the old English, godsip, which actually was um, from godparents who would be, when a child was born, they would gather around uh, the cradle and they would chatter and start talking. And, um, and so actually gossip comes from the, the meaning of godparents. Um, and and uh, so, so, so the way I would define gossip, especially taking into in, in, um, account uh, the French side of things, yep. um, I suppose the, the main distinction is between gossip, which is enjoyment of stories, there's a sort of narrative there where, which is often scurrilous, is shared between a group of people, and often when people share gossip, there is a sense of um, binding uh, within a sort of community. There, it can, as so often it's depicted, it can be very unkind. It can be cruel to others. But I think in more recent years, there's been a lot more work done on the positive nature of gossip, the way that it actually um, reinforces a sort of sense of togetherness, and especially when it comes to um, allowing other worlds to exist, whether it be minorities like uh, disabled people or um, for different sexualities, it's extraordinary how in these songs and in these tales you hear about um, not everything is just uniformly heterosexual, right. there's a lot of, of talk um, about um, same-sex desire as well and so for gossip for me uh, is is that idea of being able to tell a story reinforcing a sort of sense of, of togetherness and to be distinguished from say something like a rumor which is just a piece of news have you heard that that i would say is a rumor um, it becomes gossip when a story is made out of that rumor and it becomes something more than just a statement of fact Right. Um, so that's really fascinating. So there's some great history on, on the etymology of gossip with gossip and the, the correlation to godparents. I, I never knew that. So that's, you know, a wonderful lesson. Um, and it's really interesting that a, a series of very potent but very relevant uh, cultural discussions going on with uh, sexuality and with identity and desire are, are certainly uh, huge aspects of 
conflict today in the United States, and it seems like it's also the case in uh, the UK and possibly throughout uh, Europe, but I'm, I'm not too sure with the, the, the politics of Europe and the United States as of late. It's been really nice to kind of be out of focus with that. But um, <laughs> with gossip, I, I think for everybody listening, if, if you've been to Paris, the Pont Noir is a beautiful bridge, but even that whole area within the, the center of Paris, um, it I mean, it, it very much so is a, a living embodiment of 17th, 18th, 19th century buildings. Um, there's, of course, been um, newer renditions to the buildings, and there, there are certainly um, very modernist uh, part and like parcel aspects of it that are that are modern. But it's it's fascinating to be able to to think about gossip and what it would have been like 300 or 400 years ago and know that the city is kind of at its foundation the same uh and rather it it's its people have kind of modernized and and the things that that go over the streets have moder modernized but but the buildings themselves there it's it's really intact um Survive and, and the Pont Neuf, where um, was where, where all the songs were sung, and, and also where you'd have all sorts of stalls and market stalls, and everybody from all classes used to go there and gather gather on on the bridge. That was um, only completed; the construction was completed at the beginning of the 17th century. So that's the, the name of Pont Neuf means new bridge, and even though it comes from the beginning of the 17th century. That's what it was in the 17th century, something really new and an incredible feat of engineering. Um, and so everybody used to gather there, and uh, there, was a, there still is a, a statue of, of um, Henry IV on, on Le Cat um, on, the, on the bridge. And all the paupers used to um, gather around that, that, that statue. And so when people were singing, you know, the paupers were able to hear just as much as aristocrats stepping down from their carriages. So there was a really sort of um, strong sense of democratic feel really there, where um, the culture of the, of the street song was um, open to all classes in a way that all other kinds of culture were, um, were not open to. All classes, so that's something which really fascinated me as well. And um, and so there, right in the centre of Paris, you could have um, a bourgeois person rubbing shoulders with an aristocrat, and then right next to them, um, the very poorest of society and the illiterate uh, people, obviously, um, who would not have been able to uh, um, to write or read. But of course, they could hear the songs. They could hear the they could hear the, the content of the songs, uh, um, especially. So, so that that's something that's really interesting. And the other thing um, with the singers and what we know about them is that uh, it was a space where um, many people that I mean there aren't all that many actual identified singers that we know, but um, the the majority that we do know about were actually all disabled. There was one chap called uh, Filippo who's known as the Savoyard, who um, was blind 
and in his songs he, he, he very much sings about his blindness um, and, the, and he actually was one of the rare singers who actually had uh, volumes of his own songs published uh, at the time but then there are, there are all sorts of engravings which are um, available there was another cat, a chap called Guillaume of Limoges um, who you see sitting there with, with some crutches and he was unable to walk and so it was a space not only for all classes, but actually it was a space that welcomed um, the disabled and, and um, actually gave them the chance to make money because when they sang, people would they'd either sell the words for the songs or the, uh, people would just give, put money in their purses while they were singing. And so that was a, another extraordinary thing about it. Um, and suddenly, whereas in the past, I'd just been studying things that were really only available to the very elite, the theatre of the time or the, um, uh, uh, the, the, the literature of the time. But suddenly here, I was being able to study something which involved all kinds of people. And, and that was enormously exciting. Yeah. You know, that definitely adds a, a, a new spice to... Paris, and I'll definitely be thinking about this conversation the next time I walk over the Pont Noir and I'm in the, the center of Paris. So with the, the, the discussion of uh, aristocrats, the uh, bourgeois, and then the maybe the, the, the poorest of the poor, how were the volumes um, written? Were the were the singers the um, were, were they literate enough to write their words, or were they working with individuals, or how how did you manage to find such wonderful um, artifacts? Um, just yeah, well, that's a really that's a really great question. Um, the, first of all, about the, it's interesting. I think the singers themselves must have had um, a certain degree of literacy um, because it's almost certain that they would have been the ones who would have written the, the words to the songs down and sold them to people who could read or who wanted to read. But of course, the performance of the songs didn't necessarily need, um, you know, you didn't need to read, but some people would rather like the gossip in, included in the, those songs, so they would buy them as sort of fly sheets. But the actual volumes which I consulted, um, Luckily, when it came to the 18th century, that's when there was this absolute love of collecting all sorts of things. And there was this person in the 18th century who uh, gathered all the songs that he knew from the 17th and early 18th century, wrote them all down, said what song... I mean, very rarely do you actually have the musical notation, but it would always be saying, set to the tune of. And, and it was easy to... Uh, relatively easy to, to track down the tunes to those songs because they were well-known folk songs of the day and, and it's a bit like the pop pop songs of, of today that's that's the sort of thing that, that everybody would know the tunes so they could join in you know that's a really part participatory thing about it anyway but this this guy um in the 18th century uh, uh gathered them all into but just wrote them all down and and rather more it, it's not all terribly innocent because uh, th this guy's um, uncle was Claire um, His his uh, father and uncle were actually involved in the, the uh, Parisian police. The police was first set up, actually, a police force in um, in the 17th century. 
and um, a lot of the song text came from police notebooks where spies would stand around and note down the songs that were being sung in case that they were being too subversive of the king or, or, or were crossing moral boundaries. And so uh, one can see there the, the danger of these things. So but we now have access to these songs um, thanks to police, uh, to a large extent, to the police noting down these songs. Well, that is uh, a great correlation to the role of police, I, I guess, throughout the centuries, right? I, I mean, secret police and um, I, I guess music. It's really interesting to think of the, the connection of music being a an or early correlation to uh, police in uh, France, but also just in terms of its influence on modern uh, documentation and everything. So that's that's actually another just mind-boggling transformation of, of history. So maybe a, a question related to modern day, and this one might be a curveball. What do you think of gossip of the 17th and 18th century versus, say, gossip today that is um, maybe done on digital mediums, like uh, various social media like Facebook or through even um, news uh, outlets like the New York Times or uh, the BBC and stuff like that. Is there um, is there uh, similarity and correlation to maybe 17th century gossip versus modern gossip today, or um, is it just so radically different that there's no connections? I don't think it's radically different at all. I think they're incredible connections. Remember um, how our rumours or when, when we speak about gossip or, or rumours it's always that they are being spread they're being disseminated they're going through various channels whether it be through sort of little shady through shady passages through underground through um, uh, somebody scurrying along standing in a corner passing little sheets about things or telling people things it's all about the spreading of the news and of course throughout history um, there have been different ways of spreading that news, you know, where, from the invention of the printing press, when suddenly things could, could be spread more widely. And, and, but when it comes to gossip, of course, you've always got that oral component where you're, you're speaking it. It's something which you can tell somebody. And of course, there is gossip in, in uh, writing and things like that. And I would just say that the, the kind of new media and, um, and, and all those sort of sort of things in, in this century um, are very much as an extension of that, of ways of spreading news. And of course, the, the, the big thing in the States today and, in, um, and throughout the world, of course, is the thing about fake news. And we it's extraordinary that somebody like Trump can use that term fake news when, of course, he himself knows that he probably is spreading a lot of fake news himself. But it's almost using the language as a, as a term of abuse that you yourself use for your own advantage too. Um, and I suppose there's there are all different ways in which you start spreading the news. And of course, what's what things like um, uh, the the internet and and uh, social media uh, can do particularly is not only spread 
uh, actual factual news very quickly, but also can spread gossip about people, uh, whether wrong or right. And um, the, the one thing it's difficult to discern, which is exactly the same with if you were listening to a song being sung about somebody and saying what they were getting up to in bed with somebody else, um, unless you knew them personally and they had told you that, you, you're not quite sure whether this is just uh, scandalous gossip about thinking about them or whether it's true. And there's um, and people listening to those songs would, would have had to think, is this true? And for the most part, people used to take it at face value. And isn't that exactly what so many um, rumours that are spread via social media, when you see it there with a photograph accompanying it, something like that on Facebook, you automatically sort of think, oh, that must be true, until you kind of take a step back and think, well, actually, why do I immediately assume it's true, just because it's there, out there? And, and so I think there are many of the same ethical and moral questions um, about rumours and gossip and distinguishing fake and real news um, uh, are, are questions which were very important then and now seem even more urgent now. So I think you were quite right to make that. So um, might seem like a curveball, but when you when you face up to the ball, you can probably hit it out of the park because you realise how the two of the, um, the, the different ages are uh, astonishingly similar. Yep. Um, so... I, for everybody listening, like that to me is one of the the most important things about the humanities. So as, as important as business is, and as important as sciences and everything, um, you know, the fact that there's now a connection of four hundred years of of gossip through history and and humanities, um, it, it makes things like the internet all the more relevant and uh the the testament of of how humanity no matter what kind of technological change happens um how similar we are in our behaviors uh so just everybody think about that that's like that's that's a really fascinating thing about having this opportunity to have a conversation with nick about gossip in the 17th century um so with your songs and with the volumes that you've been going through with gossip have you found anything related to the way that um people are dressed so possibly the way that uh aristocrats dress or uh bourgeois individuals are dressing or even the way that um the people singing songs um are there any connections of how they are dressed or is clothing primarily left out of a lot of the the activities in those songs Um, what's quite interesting is that, of course, not only do you get people selling their wares, you get charlatans selling quack med medicines, you get all the performers, people doing little plays, uh, people singing, um, and, and, and all those. But, of course, it was a great place for thieves to lurk. And one of the things, especially after night, uh, you know, after dark, um, and um, there are many accounts of the, the, the most valuable possession that used to be stolen on uh, the Pond Earth would be um, gentlemen's cloaks, and also, also women's, but their, their outer garment, their cloaks, which were often made of a very, um, you know, like velvet or sort of high-rate material, 
and, and clearly was um, worth a lot of money. So uh, the, that, that's one uh, thing which is often spoken about when in the Pondo at that time is, is, uh, is how actually clothes were stolen um, because they were worth so much. And um, there, there was one tale about uh, the, the British ambassador, um, also, I think of some of his some of his staff were going across the bridge and then complained about um, their, their their cloaks being being taken from them. So so, so clothes do play quite part. When it comes to, to footwear, um, one thing which I often forget uh, about um, Paris from that time, and you know, if, if people complain and say, "Goodness me, Paris is dirty," and, and the, the, the streets are dirty now. Then, um, if you were just reading official literature of the time, uh, you would think, oh, it was this beautiful, almost pastoral sort of uh, uh, idyll. But in fact, um, there are various people, that there's, a, there's a, a person who wrote a kind of anti-novel, a chap called Furetier. He was actually one of the first people to produce uh, a dictionary, a monolingual dictionary in French in the 17th century. But he also wrote this, what, what is in effect an anti-novel, it's called the bourgeois uh, novel, Le Roman Bourgeois. And in that, he depicts Paris as being completely full of dirt and muck everywhere. Um, and, and getting in your clothes and getting in your, your, your feet and things like that. And looking at the songs, it's really interesting how often um, boots are mentioned when um, they have... Up there, having to be cleaned from all the muck of the streets of Paris, and of course, a, a rather useful rhyme in the songs, and that's probably why you quite so often get with the word for, in French for boot is butt, and the word for muck or dirt is cot. So, uh, so butt and cot are very good rhyming words in, in the songs. So often you you get uh, references uh, to that, um, but there are. I don't know if you'd like me just to continue and give a couple of sort of interesting examples of, of footwear. Absolutely. Songs from the time. Oh, there's, there's one great song um, about uh, the, the, perhaps the greatest military general um, of the time, who was, uh, in fact, the king's cousin, who was the, the, the Prince de Condé. Um, he, he was known as the, the Great Condé, Le Grand Condé, but he was the, the, the King Louis XIV, a first cousin, and he fought these amazing battles. Um, and, uh, and there is one story and one song which was sung um, in 16, uh, let me just check this, yeah, 1675, uh, where he, uh, he, it was in one of his military campaigns, but he suffered severely from gout. And it was um, impossible for him to put on his military boots. And, and, and there are songs there making fun of that fact. And in, in the one song, it's, it, it says, uh, and I'll just quote actually, it says, I want to give to the Prince of Condé uh, my um, silk slippers uh, because this hero um, will then always be ready to go to war wearing slippers. So instead of in, instead of uh, boots, so that was one rather fun thing. And, and you can imagine that the greatest military hero of the age striding out onto the uh, onto the, the, the battlefield 
slippers rather than boots uh, is, is quite a, a wonderful, uh, absurd um, image. But then, and there's an, another rather more moving image from uh, um, roughly around about the same time, which tells of um, a man who was visiting Geneva, and, and in the song, which, which tells about it, it's a chap called Lanou, and it says that he was in Geneva, I'm just quoting this now, um, needing boots to uh, get rid of the, uh, the dirt. And he went to a shoemaker um, who was expert in his uh, uh, métier. I don't know this person's name. This is, this is quoting the song. Yeah. But for, the, person, but for the, the young boy who was helping his master, they said that his name was Vezin. Magnificent name, I think it was quite a kind of uh, um, aristocratic name. Lanou, astonished, explains himself uh, and shows himself, and and first of all, suspects that it might be his nephew that he thought was dead. And anyway, that's that's the, the words of the song. So it's quite an interesting thing. And, and it turns out that uh, this uh, young boy, Veza had been spirited away at birth by a jealous relative who didn't want him to um, inherit the family wealth. And he was made to be an apprentice for a shoemaker. And it just happened that this guy, who was his uncle, it turns out that he was his uncle, came to get new boots, to, to, to get rid of the dirt that, that he was suffering from walking through the streets of Geneva, and discovers his own nephew, and the, 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 the after story of that, because I just looked up what happened afterwards, was that he took this, this boy back to Paris and made him his rightful um, inheritor. And so suddenly somebody who was the lowliest of shoemaker's assistants suddenly becomes one of the richest people in the land. Yeah. I mean, that is actually a really amazing uh, just story um, in itself, um, just thinking about the, the complications of family and of wealth and, um, but the fact that this is in a song and it's being yes. gossiped about, like that is even more amazing. Um, yeah, it's, it's very possible that, that this, this story might not even have reached anybody unless, you know, acceptable through the song. And then people started kind of looking into it a bit more and, uh, and suddenly you discover, so you know, these songs don't just say scurrilous gossip about what people are doing to each other, or you know, uh, just just sort of um, uh, speculating about people. There are actually some really valid stories which um, have survived through the songs, but which would very likely have disappeared altogether um, uh, if it weren't for them. Yeah. Well, so your work covers the. 17th and 18th century how how far into the 18th century um is some of the gossip that you've worked with well um these uh, volumes kind of go up till sort of mid to late uh, 18th century and in fact when it came to the you know, the french revolution 1789 um there was a very different kind of tradition of songs you know often okay. quite uh, political songs which would be sung you know about whether it be about Louis the Sixteenth or uh, um, bringing down the you know the royal government, those sort of things, and storming the Bastille, so it became a very different kind of song. Okay. But, but 
throughout the 18th century yeah, that you have these similar sorts of things where um, often they are political, but, but for the most part they're not. They, they deal with uh, ordinary people's lives and stories about both famous and ordinary people. Um, and and that, that's something that I've always found very compelling. But also it gives um, counter stories to the official propaganda of the time. So when Louis XIV died in 1715, um, he, uh, he he was of course praised as being the great, the, the most, the most uh, long-serving king in the history of Europe. And that's still the case. You know, he, he he was king for a very very long time. From I mean, in effect, from the 17th to the 1630s to 1715, uh, yep. got full power in 1661. But you know, much of the 17th century right into the 18th century. Um, but the songs that were sung on the streets after his death tell a very different story, where they say, you know, especially in the last years of his reign, you know, he um, he, he bled the, the the finances of the country dry for his military campaigns, and everybody suffered from huge hardship. And so, a, a, a totally different tale about this king. And in fact, there's one song which says, and in fact, it's available. Um, as performance on um, ParisianSoundsDesk.org. If you just look at songs and their stories, you'll be able to see um, here also and, and see the words in English of uh, the, some of the songs. But there's this one song about Louis the Fourteenth where it says, um, "Goodness, thank goodness, uh, uh, his surgeon his, and his, his doctor was so useless because otherwise we might have had to live with him for another few years. Thank goodness his, his surgeon was so bad that, that Louis has now died. Yeah, um, that's terrible. So, yeah, um, and, and there are all sorts of things saying that all his finance ministers should be up there hanging and should be dying at the same time. You know, so, so it's an extraordinary um, counter-narrative to the official version of, of events. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's some great connections to shoes. There's some great connection to, to gossip of the time. It's funny that we're gossiping about gossip. That's, that's even more funny. Um, now when you're going through and, and recreating the, the environment in which these songs, uh, would have been, uh, sung, how, how do you go about, um, working with individuals? So, so now that you have the text, how do you like what what are you doing when you're working with singers and musicians to to recreate these these environments to think about Paris in its its historical light? Yeah, that, that again that's, that's a great question because um, the first of all, as I as I mentioned, you know, all these uh, the words for these songs they just say set to this tune. So that's all we've got, and, and it's quite easy to, uh, because there were various compilations of the popular tunes of the day, and so you, you've got just the, the single line of, of, of the, the songs. Now that's one of the songs that, uh, tunes that was, was popular at that time. Um, and you've just got that line. And of course, what do you do with it? You know, when you're trying to perform it with musical instruments and things like that. And what the musicians, and, and there's this one chap, um, Jonathan Reese, who, um, has arranged the songs, and and so when we've performed them, um, it, he's it's thanks to his arrangements. Now, of course, that means you are just you, you, you're guessing to a certain extent. But what he did so brilliantly, uh, this chap Jonathan Reese, is he tried to imagine 
what kind of instruments one could easily bring onto the Pondov. So easily portable. And, and in fact, we've got lots of um, engravings of performers from the time. So you also see the sort of things that they would have, like there'd be a violin, um, uh, actually bagpipes. Uh, um, the, 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 there are some pictures of people with bagpipes uh, and uh, various things. And what, um, so, so what he did was, was arrange these songs for just like a cello or a violin, maybe just a single flute. And then he would use that, like, for percussion, the sort of things that could be easily got hold of, like oyster shells, as, as to, 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 oh. to hit on, to, to give a sort of nice percussion. And a bottle, of course, because, you know, many of the songs were sung in taverns, so you would have had a nice bottle to clink on. And so he, he's been very creative in that way, but not going, you know, having a whole orchestra of 30 violins, because that's just completely, you know, that would never have happened at the time. But a single violin, absolutely. Yeah. And so, so that's how uh, he he arranged them. And of course, you, you those those arrangements you can hear on the um, on that website, yeah. which um, which which shows uh, again. And they're great fun. They're great fun to to, to listen to. Um, they, they have a they have a wonderful sort of joie de vivre um, on them. And, and, and you know, I I think if if uh, you were interested at all, I I could I could even just sort of play play you one of the songs or just so you can hear what they sound like uh, with with the with the songs and that sort of thing i don't know if that would be yeah. of interest yeah um, i mean th this is just a little um medley of songs mostly around about um for uh, the the composer the famous composer of the day lully he was uh, Louis XIV's official composer. He wrote various operas, and he had quite a colourful, romantic life as well. Yeah. Um, and, and 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 if I just I'll put on this, and you can just hear, just get a little taste of it, and then I hope it comes through okay. Let's see now. There we are.
Lily, it starts off about Lily proposing, but also about what everybody's doing in court. And, um, and, and in that particular song as well, was, was gossiping about the king's mistress, um, which was Madame de Maintenon, who was the widow of, uh, of an author called Scavel. And so in that song, what it's saying is, you, you know what I mean, the, 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 you might have heard the words, which means you understand me well, you know what I mean. Um, and it's very much sort of gossip there. Where do you notice with the arrangement of it, you've got um, a bottle being hit for, for for the percussion. You've just got a single um, violin at different voices joining in, and you, and you can just see how the it's participation, but also how easy it is just to bring a, a violin onto the into a, a bar and just perform there and then. Yeah. Um, well, that was uh, very interesting to, to listen to because one of the things that, that always fascinates me with French is how the voice dances uh, in terms of, you know, there, there's very high, very low uh, stresses of, of French. And that's always been something that's... Uh, been been very interesting to think about uh, as as a monotone speaker, typically with English, and as as I've learned more Japanese, there's really a lot that you can do just speaking in in a monotone uh, expression, and I, I think that that really contextualizes some some really beautiful differences of spoken language, even though a lot of maybe philosophical ideals and a lot of cultural connections exist between uh, France, uh, the UK at this point, but maybe Britain back at the time, and then also the United States. And just thinking that that was just before the, you know, I mean, the, the colonies obviously would have been established and a lot of uh, American exploration. So it, it's really interesting to hear the Parisian side of, of history and, and think about that in a very different um, vein to American history. So thank you for that. Pleasure. No, it's been a great, it's been, been a great pleasure of speaking and, 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 and nice to, to share my enthusiasm too for the, yeah. the, 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 the work that I do. So for anybody who's interested in, in finding you, um, so you're based out of Cambridge as a professor um, and then if people want to contact you or if they want to find more information on the music and, and the research that you're doing, wh where can they find you? Well, um, the starting point obviously would be the website I've mentioned a few times. It was this uh, yep. parisiansoundscapes.org. But um, I've uh, written a book called um, Gossip, which is on gossip. It's called uh, uh, Gossip, Sexuality and Scandal in early modern France, or in France, from, um, that's, that's one book I've done. And in fact, I've got a, a book um, coming out uh, later this year, which is being uh, is published by Pennsylvania State University Press. Um, and that's called uh, The Powers of Sound and Song in Early Modern Paris. Um, so that's, that's going to be out, I think, in November of this year, 2019. Um, and so I'm excited about that because that involves uh, very much um, the songs, but also I'm looking at the whole idea of sound in Paris at the time. And uh, um, that's, that's uh, very much in progress now and, and um, 
due out in a few months time yeah well again thank you for everything and when this episode's released i'll make sure to uh provide the links for the the soundscapes.org and then um even your your books and your your up and coming projects so again thank you for your time and i definitely look forward to talking with you in the future not at all thanks so much all righty all righty goodbye everybody i hope you guys enjoyed